glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to another episode of Encountering the Trinity. I'm your host, Steve Nichols, and not joining me today is Father Phil. Well, he, he's kind of joining us. Um, we're going to be listening to a talk that he gave back last year, towards the end of the year, before Christmas. And uh, the talk is entitled, Jesus the Absolutely Singular. And I, I absolutely love this talk. I've actually listened to it almost twice now <laughs> before I've uh, posted it here. And um, really, really enjoy it, what Father Phil has to share with us. Um, Father Phil and I have tried to record a couple times since our last numbered episode. I think it was 22 or 23 and have failed miserably. Um, basically, it's my fault. <laughs> Uh, technical uh, problems that we've been having, but we hope to get another podcast where both he and I have a discussion and talk. Um, hopefully next week we're going to try to record that. In the meantime, though, if you do have any questions for myself or Father Phil, um, you can email us at encounterthetrinity at gmail.com. And we do have a website. It's www encounteringthetrinity.com and um, from there you can find links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page and um, also links to our podcasts in iTunes and um, if you could keep me in your prayer I'm going to attempt to make or to, I should say to start a series of videos that I will be posting on YouTube, and I don't really want to go into any detail at this point, but I hope to get the first episode up um, hopefully next week, <laughs> no later than like next week, Thursday. So if you could just keep me in your prayers, I'd appreciate that as I um, try to go where the Lord is leading me. Um, those the, the video, I will make sure there's a link to that on the website. And then there will be a YouTube channel that I'll be posting um, that video and subsequent videos on. So, um, But enough about me. Let's join Father Phil in his talk once again. It's entitled, Jesus, the Absolutely Singular. So let's us begin by praying together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, through the prophet Isaiah whose voice we have heard all through Advent. You promise the one who will be God with us, God among us, Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Our faith and our hope is that this little child who appears to us during this season is the one who will come again in glory, the one who walked the streets of Nazareth and the one who is present and calls us and sits with us this morning as we ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit to illumine the meaning of him and the meaning of this season, the meaning of our lives, and the purpose of all of history. Grant us your Holy Spirit that our hearts may be on fire this year for not just a memory of his past coming, but a deepening awareness of his presence among us as Emmanuel and also as the King of Glory who will come in a way that will bring us the peace with which we seek you daily. We thank you too for the faith of Mary and Joseph who kneel by the crib of your son aware that they are in the presence of the triune God. Grant us their faith, give us your Holy Spirit, and help us celebrate this year of your son's birth with a new birth for our lives. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Mary, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I just had a thought, boy, they went right out of my head. <laughs> well, I am just uh, thrilled to be with you here today. Um, I thought I would uh, try to link up uh, what we did last week with Advent with, um, you know, our, our anticipation here of Christmas. And um, 
I was recommending, Sister Pauline, before you came in, this little book by Pope Benedict on the infancy narratives, uh, which is a very rich uh, treatment of the mysteries that we're about to celebrate uh, this Christmas. And um, I just uh, have found it a treasure trove of, of wisdom. Oh, that's what I... See, my thought comes back if I just talk long enough. And that is, um, you know, I... I um, you know, I love to begin our sessions with prayer, and um, and uh, you know, if if my heart is open and I can kind of listen to God, I kind of I kind of feel what I should say, but I also feel like I should listen a little more. So you can you can keep that prayer uh, in your heart as well. Um, so I never know quite how to pray. I guess is what I'm telling you. I lo- I can't. There's nothing I want to do more. But I oscillate back and forth between listening. But my heart, uh, wor- words come into my heart about giving expression to what's there. So I, I do a lot of talking when I'm <laughs> sitting with the Lord. So uh, as St. John of the Cross would say, who's, who, whom I quoted for this week, um, he would say, if, it, if that's what you feel inspired to do, do it. And if you feel like that's a little weary, just sit and ask God to give you a kiss of his love. So... Well, let's look at um, 21 today, the chat, lesson 21, Jesus the Absolutely Singular. And what I've been struggling to do, you know, sometimes it seems like we succeed here, and so I, I feel like I succeed in being able to express and have you join me in a view of the mystery of our Lord that is much greater than, never less than, but much greater than his, his historical incarnation. You know, I always try to remind us that, that as St. Athanasius said, without ceasing to be the word, the word was also the man, Jesus of Nazareth. But the word, Jesus as the word, is a more encompassing, more mysterious reality than just the man Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so Jesus of Nazareth is like the historical expression of the person of the Son in the Trinity from all eternity. And it's that same word who will return again, and it's that same word who is present among us, communicated to us by his Holy Spirit. So thinking of Jesus in a Trinitarian manner is always difficult, but worth the effort, in my view. Um, Because otherwise, our celebration of Christmas and all of the feasts of our faith simply become a looking back on a piece of history rather than a deepening awareness of the one who is with us now and the one who will manifest himself in his fullness at a time we know not. So we are really much more, even at Christmas, much more of a forward-looking people than a backward-looking people. It's like the, the, our celebration of the Incarnation is an Advent, I think, as I said a couple, ta- a couple sessions ago. Advent is, is aimed at the second coming of Christ. When we talk about the comings of Christ, we talk about the Incarnation, the coming to us in the liturgy, and then the coming to us at the end of time. And in the previous talks we've done about the future, it's that it's that the fullness of Jesus, the Omega, who allows us to understand him as the Alpha as well and as Emmanuel. So you have Alpha, the word in the beginning, Emmanuel, God with us now and in Nazareth, and then the Omega, the Lord who will come again in glory. And at that point, we will have all been so incorporated into him that we will have discovered when we rise from the dead and maybe even before then, we will have discovered our union with him uh, such that we are in him and he is in us without us dissolving into him and without him being identified with us. But we will be as inseparable with him in this final coming as he is with his Father, and they both are with their Holy Spirit. So we're being drawn more and more gradually, more and more completely into the life of the Trinity. And the Incarnation is, as it were, the the beginning of that process. Um, And that process is ongoing 
working throughout the entire universe. So, so that's why I continue to try to enlarge our view of the mystery of Jesus and try to keep us from simply focusing on the child in the major or the man in Israel and then thinking, wouldn't it be good if he were here today, but he's not, so therefore we should be really sentimental and reverent around Christmas. But we don't adore a statue under a tree. We, we, we partake of the one who is with us now, the very same one whom we will see in a greater fullness at a time that he will choose to disclose. So it's, it's that hopefulness, it's that sense of Jesus, to quote Balthazar, who, whom I quoted on our sheet today as well, it's that sense of Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit as ever greater and ever more than that of which our mind can conceive. So our images of him, our icons of him, our statues of him, our celebrations of him, our, our, our liturgical expressions of him are all true, but they are images of the fullness, and they partake of the fullness, and they communicate something of the fullness to us. But we are being made more and more capable of receiving more and more of the fullness. And so I'm encouraging us not to look backwards. To celebrate Christmas by looking back at the Nativity in Nazareth, which is very important to do, is the equivalent of looking in the rearview mirror to make sure who's behind you. But you wouldn't want to drive in the rearview mirror because you would quickly run into something. And our faith runs into dryness when we make it entirely a thing of the past. Our advent, advent means the presence of the king among us. You know, and I use this image, Benedict uses this in this little book again. He talks about the word advent in in the Roman Empire meant that the the emperor has arrived in your village to announce to you how your life is about to change by something he's going to do. So it, it means presence among us, and yet it's a, it's a, it's an, it, it has also associated with it a note of expectation because Advent means the, the announcement that he has arrived, which we believe he is with us. He's in the tabernacle. He's in wherever two or three are gathered. He's with us. He is among us. He's in town. You know, as, the, as they say in the secular world, Elvis is in the building. <laughs> you know, Sister Pauline has come home, but we haven't seen her yet. You know, let's say Sister Pauline went somewhere to Rome or to a chapter where she received news that was going to fundamentally alter the nature of our community. And you got the message she has arrived back at the convent. You would want to see her. So there's this assurance she's back. And there's this anticipation that there's something yet to be disclosed. And so the fullness of who she is, what she's done, and what she has come to bring us is yet to be disclosed. So we live in that, that, that tension of already here, already known, already tasted. It's good. It's all good. We know it's all good. But we can't conceive of how good until the fullness is manifest to us. So... I don't want to go over all those again, but it's so difficult to keep this balance between respect for the past and anticipation of the future and then liveliness in the present alive. And only the Holy Spirit really can do that. So as we come to contemplate this child in the manger this Christmas and the same one present among us and the same one who will come again, Um, We want to try to ask the Holy Spirit to engender in us a sense of what Balthazar calls the, the, the absolutely singular nature of Jesus. And let me tell you where, why Balthazar uses that phrase to to try to jolt us into a new awareness and a new appreciation and even a new approach to the person of Jesus. It's the very same thing that Benedict is trying to do for us in all of his books because he was a friend and and colleague of Balthazar. They share the same vision, that vision I told you that antedated uh, Vatican II Council. This mystery of Christ present in the liturgy and yet uh, conveying to us a fullness that that we need to expand our horizons in order to be able to appreciate and receive and and now what what (laughs) oh and 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 balthazar says we should refer to jesus always as the absolutely singular now that's a little more philosophical than Pope Benedict or, or Joseph Ratzinger would, would use to describe the same mystery. But they're all trying to expand our view of, of the person of Jesus. 
as a person who's able to be present in the past, the present, and the future simultaneously. And that any unction or devotion we have towards Jesus in the present comes from primarily the Jesus who will be coming to us in glory. Okay, so it's the future that is illuminating the present for us and giving us a fullness in our love of the Lord that we, we must look to, we must get develop a kind of contemplative imagination of what life will be like him when we are in him and he in us like he is in the other persons of the Trinity. St. Paul's total Christ where uh, all things have been brought to completion and we are all pieces of the mosaic in the person of Jesus exhibiting both his face and our own faces at the end of time in the fullness of time which can happen in this life too if I'm truly sanctified and deified so it's that it's that mystery that we're always trying to ask the Holy Spirit to make alive in our hearts and Benedict says you one way of phrasing it would be to always think of Jesus as the absolutely singular meaning there is there is no counterpoint to Jesus, and he is not an example of any other truth that is more fundamental than him. Okay, and let me try to explain what I, what I mean by that, because the secular world, and even much of um, what I would call two-dimensional or or banal Catholic theology, and certainly most all of of um, of uh, evangelical Christianity as you find it in people like Rick Warren and the others who are so popular uh, Joel Osteen um, uh, you know guys who come on television at Christmas peddling all these books they psychologize Jesus you know what I mean just like they take people like Mary Magdalene and even the Blessed Virgin Mary and they make them examples of larger truths are like archetypal truths you know so you'll find a jungian psychologist who will say that uh, mary is the, is a is a good example of the feminine psyche and jesus is a good example of um, this or that other truth about the human condition. This is the approach of Rudolf Boltman. We need to demythologize the Gospels and see what they mean in terms of psychological truths. So when we call Jesus the Prince of Peace, what that means is that Jesus is really a, an ex, is, is, a, is a human example of that kind of calm we get when we draw close to the divine. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is being reduced to something else rather than see trying to reconceive human realities and human relationships in terms of this person of Jesus. And I'm I'm not I'm not expressing it very well. Maybe the in fact, what's I'm going to actually use the paper today because I put these on here for a reason, and hopefully this will get us to where I'm trying to take us. The first four quotes are, and we'll just go through all of these, and I'll try to hold my commentary till the end so that I can can articulate a better sense of what I'm saying here. Here's that one, and I, I picked these because we hear these during Advent, but we hear them anytime, and and they're. They are so astounding if we allow ourselves to to be impacted by them. See, there's always a temptation to interpret scripture in terms of our own mind instead of allow our mind to be transformed by the words of scripture. Do you have a sense of what I'm meaning by that? You know, we have fears and understandings and passions and ideas. We have a framework. We have a system of thinking of, of, of the world and other people and things. And when we read the gospel story, we can say, oh, yeah, that that corresponds to my experience. But the real trick with holiness is allowing my experience of good things and bad things to be redefined and reconfigured and reconstellated in terms of the mysterious revelation that is being put forward in the words of the scripture you know so we hear we hear things let me get here's a good example but <laughs> i'm really getting into my quotes aren't i <laughs> here's a good example of of how we we almost automatically do this we try to reduce the mystery to to reality as we know it 
rather than having the mystery revealed to us, reality as you know it, number one is unreality. And number two, there's another one that you're being invited to enter into, but it would require your mind being reconfigured until you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Adam. You have the mind of Eve, which is a mind that is suspicious and skeptical and is self-contained and has a system that explains everything by causes that relate to every other cause. And so you, over time, become incapable of imagining an intervening cause. And so you say like Ahaz, I'm not going to ask for a sign because that's to tempt God. And secondly, you're like St. Joseph, who I'll refer to here in a minute, who was tempted by the devil to believe that there, there can't be, can there, from a human, human standpoint, um, a virgin birth. That can't be. That's impossible. That's two opposites trying to coincide. And there can't be God, can't, there can't be Emmanuel, God among us, because by definition, God is outside the universe. And from a purely human standpoint, that makes a certain kind of sense. So you can see how doubt, which is what our world starts with, is a very natural thing given the limits of human reason and rationality. Okay, I'm too far afield here. Because i got to talk to you about St. Joseph. That's why I put the little picture down at the bottom of it. Let's stop there for a minute. I'll go to the quotes. Okay. Now, this is John the Baptist. Uh, this is Jesus speaking of John the Baptist. And we had this earlier in Advent. Amen, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I'll just let that sit for a minute because I would get, want to give you an hour homily on that. Here's another one that, it, so, so, well, oh boy, I almost can't resist. Okay. None is greater than John the Baptist, born of woman. Human understanding. But the least in the kingdom of God, the smallest iota of this truth from above is greater than he. Translation, all of the human wisdom in the world, all of the human righteousness in the world, all of everything that has passed for human religiosity and sanctity and holiness and righteousness, all the way up to and including John, who is the holiest person ever in Israel, should not even be compared to the smallest person in the kingdom of God, cannot even be compared to the first element of what our life looks like when we are living in the Trinity and living in the Son. Now I'm translating. So there's such a gap between this world and the other that it's unjumpable by any ladder that you might try to build because the Jews tried to build the Tower of Babel and the ladder to heaven by following the law. John was at the very pinnacle of that ladder, keeping the law perfectly, as did his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It said that in yesterday's gospel. But all of those people at the very top of the tower of human religion, all of them, if there are a few, including St. Paul, the least who's above them is greater than all of those below. So he's trying to illustrate here an unbridgeable gap. In fact, a place of no comparison. What Jesus is really saying is there's no comparison between the way you think about religion and he's speaking to us. There's no comparison between the way you think of righteousness and what it really is. You see, in those words, if we see them as mystery, they just leave us dumbfounded. We don't we quickly jump and try to give a mundane interpretation to it, usually a moralistic one. But that also falls absolutely flat. Okay, anyway, let's go on to the next one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If I hear that from a standpoint, uh, if I hear that from any standpoint other than from the place it comes or from the person it comes from, who is the eternal word. If I don't hear that phrase from above, but I interpret it in the categories that we use here below, I will say as C.S. Lewis, well, here's how C.S. Lewis in looking at phrases like that and looking at the person of Jesus in general said, 
either he is an egotistical maniac and a lunatic calling himself God, or he's right. And if he's right, then all of our interpretations of arrogance with respect to him, and maybe with, with respect to anybody, would have to change. So he's saying, I am the, nobody ever said this before. You know, they said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They have said to you, but I say to you. I mean, what got him killed ultimately was he was, as Pope Benedict says in his first volume of this series, and the Jews understand this better than the Catholics. He is substituting himself for all created religion including, in a certain sense, the practice of our own faith. In other words, our rituals are simply instruments of contact and communication and communion with a living person. They are not systems in themselves to be idolatrized. You know what I'm saying? So it's the person of Jesus claiming for himself. He's putting himself in the place of everything Every rule, every, every system, every form of thinking, every manner of living, every pattern of behavior. He's saying everything you do by nature is of no avail. Only learning about me, entering into me, and having me through the power of my spirit totally change your way of thinking. Otherwise, you see, we can never make sense out of those things we read, the hard sayings of Jesus. I say to they, you've heard it say, uh, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. Pray for those who hate you and love your enemies. There is simply no way to make rational sense out of that, given our need to defend ourselves and our need to protect ourselves. You see what I'm saying? But he is saying, I'm wanting to invite you into a different way of living. Our conscientious objectors like Hans Jäger, all of our martyrs, ultimately they may be afraid to do it, but all of our martyrs ultimately, some have been transformed by Christ and the Holy Spirit to be able to, ent- to acquire the mind of Christ. But many like Thomas More went to their death knowing in their minds and believing in their hearts that the power of meekness allowing themselves to be killed rather than to retaliate even to say a negative word about the people who are putting them to death St. Thomas More said I am the queen's good servant but God's first he paid the executioner to kill him and he even joked with the people going up the steps You know, he says I think I'm a little weak from imprisonment for a year uh, you may need to assist me going up on the way down, I should be able to help myself because <laughs> his head fell down down the stairs. You know, who can? But but it but either it takes a great faith to believe that in the face of pure evil, the people in Connecticut. I mean, how could one believe? You know that that God permits nothing to occur that is not aimed at a greater good. You, you would have to have a different kind of mind, you see? You would have to have... And again, it, it, I think with both Mary and Jesus at the cross, it's not that this new mind eliminates the fear of being persecuted or the pain of being offended or the, the difficulty when we're insulted. But there's a deeper level of, of that Marian yes that comes to her, you know, through her immaculate conception with the Holy Spirit and can come to us if we give ourselves over in the Holy Spirit to these words of Jesus that sound so offensive to our human rationality because they are. They stand in total judgment of our human rationality. They darken it. They are so bright that they darken it. But because they're so bright and because they're so incomprehensible to our own darkened intellects, we often mistakenly think, well, he couldn't have really meant that. It's, he's the one who's in the darkness. We're really in the light. So we have to reinterpret these sayings of Jesus to make them more palatable to the ordinary Catholic because only nuns and priests and monks can really live that way. 
No, we're all called to live that way. But it's impossible for all of us without a direct surrender to the Holy Spirit. So again, it's a Trinitarian event. Here's John now speaking of Jesus. I am baptizing you one with water. I am baptizing you with water. Translation, human rationality compared to what Jesus is going to give you is like water. Okay, All things human are like water. One who is mightier than I. Translation, one to whom I cannot really be compared. The real tricky thing here, as you'll see in a minute, and I got a quote from Balthazar that I think will help us. The real tricky thing here is to realize that Jesus, with respect to John the Baptist or any other human figure, like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or anybody else to whom you want, might be tempted to compare him. He cannot be compared to anyone else. Only human persons can be compared to each other. Jesus is beyond comparison. He renders all comparison with himself irrelevant and impossible. That's hard to explain. I'll let Balthazar do it here in a minute. But John the Baptist is saying this basically in his own words. I am baptizing you with water, but one who is, in brackets, infinitely mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He's, there's an echo there of, of Moses not worthy to approach the burning bush. He has to take off his shoes to approach the burning bush. I'm not worthy there does not mean I'm not morally righteous or poor me or compared to him, I'm really no man. It's not that at all. It's the sense of being that there's something so tremendously greater here than anything I have ever seen or heard about. Jesus is so hard to take because not only does he come from another world, even though he's altogether human, Everything he says is so utterly foreign to our normal way of being being there that we are always left with the question that he asked his disciples after he introduced them to one of his further mysteries, which was that of the Eucharist. Will you also leave me? You know, the rich young man went away sad because he couldn't grasp the, 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 way of do, the way of relating to people using money had not corrupted him so much as formed him in such a way that we could, Jesus, he was unable at some point or unwilling to be reformed. His, his mind was not plastic enough. His heart was not soft enough. There was not enough, you know, the potter, of course, can do, one of the great church fathers says, even the hard, hardest of us in purgatory, the potter will drop the pot. <laughs> you know, the, the rigid ones among us, he'll drop the pot, it will shatter, but he loves us so much, he'll still put us back in the fire, melt us down and reform us back into what we were meant to be in the first place. So all of us Humpty Dumpties, you know, will eventually be put back together again. But the, the brittleness there, now I've, we'll come back here. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire. And fire, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, the image that I like to think of how there's no comparison to Jesus, even though the images we have and the icons we have, they're all so true, um, is the image of, of our human rationality is like holding a candle in our world of darkness, you know? We, we see other people with our candle. We see human relationships with our candle. That's the light of the human intellect, and it does provide light. It is a great gift. It's a gift of God. We are enabled to do many, many, many things with the gift of our, the light of our intellect. And what John the Baptist is saying is you're holding your light and I'm holding my light and, and, and the Lamb of God has just said my light's brighter than any of yours, but it's still a candle. You know, I've heard this phrase before, you know, the problem with the, the rat race is even if you run and win, you're still a rat, you know? We're all holding candles and, and some candles are brighter than others and some are bigger than others, but in the end, they're all candlelight. When the sun begins to rise... 
See, John is, we're like, John was preaching to people who were like, right, uh, you know, that time just before dawn, you know, even before the first glimmers of sunlight. That's John, right on the cusp of a new time. But it's still perfectly dark. So people come on and he's saying, hey, in just a little bit, there's going to be a, a radiance of fire and light like the likes of which you have never seen. And they're saying, what do you mean? I mean, we've been living with this darkness for ever since the beginning of Israel. What, what do you now? They've always looked forward to the dawn of something new. But it had gone on so long that you say, yeah, 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 that's a distant hope. Just like we say, yeah, 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 Christ will come again. You see, hope grows because our candles give us so much light and we grow comfortable with them and they work for so many things. We might still entertain the thought of a brighter light coming to help us, but we don't need it really. And we look, and then we, at Christmas, we look back to the, it's as if we are holding our candles here, and we look back to the one who gave us the candle in the first place, and we say, isn't that nice of him? We've, we've gotten our candles from the original candle giver. Well, yes, but the one who gave you the candle givers also has a light that he's going to shine on you even more than the one that he shined when John predicted him. So John is saying, just over the horizon, is the one we've been awaiting for, the son of justice, the light of the world, the, the power of the glory of God. And some, believe, some, some caught the fervor of John. Um, some got the Holy Spirit and were baptized by him, said, what should we do? We want to prepare. Uh, but John himself could not imagine what it was like. And then when Jesus finally came, John recognized him. as So, so when I'm holding my candle and the sun begins to dawn, you see, holding my candle and walking around the convent with my candle after it's midday would be a little ridiculous, wouldn't you say? So, so you blow out your candle. It's not that it's not bright. It's not that it's not good. It's not that it's not true. It becomes totally irrelevant. All of our religiosity, including the way, in many ways, that we practice our own Catholic faith, is the equivalent to preferring the candle to the sunlight. And really, well, I, I get, I'd really get off track there. I can't go there. But you see what I'm saying. So, and the sunlight for our purposes is the person of Jesus. Okay, now, and yet, the sunlight that has rendered our candles irrelevant, the, 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 the morality of the Old Testament and, and a lot of rigid religiosity, the, the, the sunlight of the person of Jesus who has rendered our tawdry religious religiosity, including a lot of that stuff that Vatican II, thank God, got rid of in the reform. That sunlight we still perceive even now that he has arrived and is among us as Emmanuel, even now the light of Christ as we experience it is still experienced it in the form of mystery without full disclosure. So we worship him in the Eucharist. We worship him in adoration. We, wor we experience him in community. We experience him and worship him and see him and taste him in service to the poor, in your apostolate, in your charism. These are all genuine, true, deep contacts and communion with the Trinitarian person of Jesus. But they, just as they also pale in comparison to what he is drawing us into day after day after day and will bring in its fullness when he comes again. Our experience of the person of Jesus now under mystery and in the world of faith exceeds everything that John the Baptist and all of Israel experienced with their candles. And, and even if we're doing this course right and we're living our religious life right, it pales in comparison to what we did earlier in our life as Catholics. It's becoming ever brighter, ever richer, ever deeper, ever more fervent, ever more of the Holy Spirit and of fire. But our current experience of the person of Jesus, even if it's very, very, very rich, 
pales as much in comparison to what we are called to as where we came from to get where we are today. Are you with me? And so the person who's drawing us all onto that and giving us himself along the way is, this, is, is much greater than all of it. And every word of his contains the fullness that now our minds and hearts still cannot grasp, even if we're very holy and deified persons. So we always want to, in our soul, yearn for the ever greater experience of the triune Lord and the person, especially the second person of that Trinity, and an ever greater and ever different and ever better understanding, experience, and even configuration of my own very self. So when I shared with you at the beginning today, I continued to ask God in my prayer, teach me to pray. And in my preaching, teach me to preach. You know, I feel, I mean, I just, I just love doing what I'm doing. Honest to God, I cannot wait to get up in the morning. I do a half an hour Lexio Divina for my little daily homilies and a few hours for Sunday. And, 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 you know, if I open myself to the Holy Spirit, I feel what he shows me, I really cannot put into words. You know, I mean, you've seen me babble with you so many times. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's entirely up to him. But, but my point here is that I continue to pray that, you know, like my friend loves about Benedict. He says it's, it's so profound, but it's so simple. And I can even, you know, people come up to me and say, Father, I really love your homilies. But I'm aware in my spirit that yes, he has given me a deep passion and I think a certain ability and charism for teaching and preaching. I see that, I thank him for that, and I'm very grateful for that, and I'm praying and praying and hoping the Archbishop will allow me to do more of it. I'm going to see him about that tomorrow, so you can keep that in your prayers for tomorrow if you would. And I know, you know, God will lead me. But at the same time, I'm always saying to God, Lord, please shape the call you have given me to pray, preach, and teach. Please shape that into ways that you know but I cannot conceive of. You know what I mean? So I feel like what I'm doing with you right now and the way that I'm doing it and what my friends affectionately call overkrill, you know, giving way too much and and dumping on people, you know, metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. That's, I don't know how to do it any other way. And right now, it always feels right to me, even if I feel like I flopped like a bad souffle. I, I always go away feeling like, you know, Lord, I felt your Holy Spirit. I, my mouth didn't always match my heart, but you can make something out. You see what I'm saying? So I'm intensely grateful. I've never been happier in my life, and I have never been happier with what God has done for me and to me. And if you knew me before, you would be even be more astounded, perhaps. But at the same time, I'm aware that he probably wants me or, or has a picture of me priesting and praying and preaching and teaching that is even differ, different, you know? I mean, maybe even radically different. You know what I mean? He might intend for me someday to end up in a monastery out in southern Missouri. You know, I, I've always felt a deep call to the contemplative life. I still need to get the address of your contemplative sisters to get some hosts. <laughs> you know, I keep re reminding myself to do that. But this ever greater of the person of Jesus is an ever greater always simultaneously about ourselves as well. So as we journey with him and deepen our communion with him under the form of mystery now by faith, he is leading us and we must be absolutely as pliant as we can to be open to another position in the community or another service that my superiors are asking me to do or another idea that comes into my head or another author that I've never read or another take on a gospel that I've not seen or a friendship with a person who for 40 years in the community has alienated me. To, to, to be open to a change of me by him out of the ever greater of who he is to show me the ever greater of who he desires me to be. 
Soon that seemed to come out, right? <laughs> so you're getting the point. Okay, let's look at our other couple of quotes here. Now, I gave a talk on Sunday at the Carmelites, and so I picked out from John of the Cross his, his comment on the same mystery here. In giving us his son, his only word, for he possesses no other, he spoke everything to us at once in this sole word, and he has no more to say. Fasten your eyes on him alone, This is the Father speaking now. Fasten your eyes on him alone, because I have spoken and revealed all, and in him you will discover even even more than you ask for or desire. You know, many people would always say to, still say, about John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or mysticism in general, you know, there's an oriental view of mysticism which is leaving behind all finite reality and dismissing all images of God so that you enter into the cloud of unknowing and you develop what they call learned ignorance and you enter into the dark night of the soul and there you achieve perfect union with God. And while there's truth to all those statements, both Teresa and John were adamant that no matter how high God takes you, or how much the darkness of the bright light of the Trinity darkens your intellect and your emotions, Um, no matter how much you're taken up into that darkness, never cease to put before your face the face, the human face of God in the person of Jesus. Never think that your spirituality can leave you leave the incarnation behind. And that's where you see some of these more new age, even among Catholics, views of Jesus that he is kind of left behind. He becomes an, an, an archetype or an avatar for a deeper experience of God, kind of above the Trinity. And that's not a Catholic or a Christian view at all. So we are always being drawn more deeply into the life of the Trinity, and this does darken our human intellect almost entirely. But we always enter into that union through a more meditative and more affective and more concrete relationship with the physical, visible, imaginable person of our Lord Jesus Christ so I am the way the truth and the life I am the door no one comes to the father except for it's not like we reach a place in spirituality where we leave Jesus behind the Holy Spirit always draws us back to the person of Jesus and Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit so that we can be animated to to seek him and this comes from the father because everything that we are given as inspirations is to attach us from the Father through the Holy Spirit to the Son. We were made for the Son as a gift from the Father. And everything comes from and leads back to the second person of the Trinity. And that's why we're Christian. We're Trinitarian Christians, but the Father and and the Spirit, in a sense, are in the background leading us to the Son who then delivers us to the Father. The Holy Spirit always remains in the background, even in eternity. So, um, and, and again, this affirms that the word made flesh is the absolutely singular reality, never to be left behind, never to be compared with anybody else, never to be used as an example of a psychological or social truth. All truth in society, all truth in the human psyche, all truth about the relations of men and women, anima and animus, all of those truths come from the one in whose image and likeness we are made, who is the second person of the Trinity. He's not made in our image and likeness. He's not an example of something we know. Only in his light do we see light. So we have to have this openness to have our minds, hearts, bodies, and even vocations reconfigured by the one whose light enlightens our path and shows us. So we are mysteries to ourselves till the very end because he's always revealing to us that which he knows about us that we do not know about ourselves. 
I remember going to Archbishop Carlson when he was just a bishop in Michigan a few years ago for confession because I was administering a parish for them, him there and I thought I might as well go to confession to my boss one time. And he just kind of listened to me, you know, with that interesting look that he has, you know, which is both compassion and dis- decisiveness. And he said, well, for your penance, pray for the graces you need that you don't know you need. <laughs> And I said, oh, my God, I'm dealing with Padre Pio here. He sees, and whether he, but I think he, he also lives in that evermore, you know. He, he, I, well, I could tell you Carlson's stories forever, but um, he made an aside to me a couple months ago when I saw him the last time, and he said, um, he was talking about some decision that had just been announced about another diocese about reconfiguring parishes and and consolidating parishes and he says well he says that's the bishop's will he says but that's not God's will uh, you know he has that uncanny sense of 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 this ever greater and so you can go in there with your plans I mean I went to him a few months ago saying Archbishop please continue I've set, put this bug in his ear for years now but he never quite takes the bait <laughs> and never will because he tells me what to do I don't tell him but I said would you please prayerfully consider letting me start a house of prayer for the archdiocese to have these kinds of conversations perpetually with anybody who wants to come in not just sisters in convents but people in the marketplace because my own priestly vocation came in large part in in conversation with a Trinitarian sister from Philadelphia who had started a house of prayer in my hometown when I thought I wanted to be a teacher for the rest of my life. Um, and he said, well, not now. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, if it's meant to be, it'll be. So I keep praying, and I ask you to pray with me this Christmas, you know, as we give the gift of ourselves to, to God at Christmas time. Pray for that gift of willingness and openness and pliability to, even at my age, your age, our age, to, 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 to anticipate and to expect that there is something you're going to lead me to, somewhere you're going to ask me to be. You know, I, a friend of mine, a physician friend of mine who's a, who's a, who's a medical doctor, a PhD, and one of the most brilliant people I know, but also an unbeliever. He and I have coffee once a month, every, uh, every one Saturday a month. And I was explain, and he's very inter- I mean, he's very open to what I talk about. And he, we, we connect with each other at another in another venue, but we're very dear friends. But he wants to know about me, and I want to know about him. I account many unbelievers as as close friends in my life all over the world, including this friend that I told you I sent this book to this week, uh, because I see the word working in them if they don't see it working in themselves. You know, I just have such a confidence. But this, uh, so I'm explaining to this friend of mine that I'm going to go see the Archbishop tomorrow and that, um, you know, I'm going to, again, just tell him how I think I could be of service in my next assignment in a a way that has, might be a little different from what I've experienced in the parish so far, though I've loved it intensely. But I see other opportunities that I would like him to consider me for because it would energize me for, and I feel like I have more to give than I'm able to give in the parish currently. That's why I love coming with you so much because you make me, you love me for one thing. And secondly, I have an outlet and, 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 and people who want to share the same thing. So it allows God to use my gifts and it's just good all around. So, so I'm explaining this to him and he says, yes, he says, but, and this guy doesn't, you know, doesn't ever darken the door of a church. He says, yes, he says, but he said, aren't you also giving the same thing to the, to the people on a daily basis? And I said, well, I try to. And he says, well, how has the feedback been? And I said, I can tell that many of them love me and, and thank me. And, I, and he says, well, how do you feel about doing the daily, I'm paraphrasing now a little bit, but how do you feel about doing the daily homilies and, and the, the weekly homilies? And I said, I just love it. I said, I, I just love sharing my heart with the people. I never thought I would. But I, and he says, he says, I think you need to be in the parish. <laughs> he says, I don't think you should ask to do full-time teaching. He says, the people need he says, and I'm sure you're, he says, you may not be saying, you may not be as elaborate with them as you are with the sisters because he knows they come here. And he says, but they're getting the same thing. And he says, God knows they need it. He said, maybe if, again, I, maybe I'm extrapolating here, but I implied, I think was maybe if I'd gotten a little more of it, I'd be maybe coming to, who knows, you know, but in any case, 
So this openness to being where God wants us, and I see in my case, and I'm sure in your case as well, I'm, I'm like Ignatius in this way. You know, if the, if the superior says it's black and it looks like white to me, it's black. You know, I, I, I mean, I really, they don't do that anymore, but, you know, thank God they don't. But, you know, I have, ab, I have unconditionally tr- unconditional trust in this bishop anyway, you know, if he says this is what you're meant to do, I believe he's got like a direct line to the Holy Spirit. So I'd say thank you. And that's why I'm going tomorrow, you know, to say I propose, but God disposes, you know. And he won't tell me tomorrow what I'm doing anyway, but I'm going to tell him what I'd like to do or how I think I could be helpful. Okay, and finally, we'll read this and then I'll finish. This is my friend Balthazar. And this is going to sound a little philosophical to you, but I think if you, again, take these sheets, look at the word occasionally, and remember the feeling you got when we talked together, it'll all come back. The eschatological emphasis of the Christian image of God, this means this Jesus and his fullness coming in glory at the end of time. This eschatological emphasis of the Christian image of God consists in the fact that God, or Jesus, is transcendent. He is the one with no opposite, non aliud, wholly other than all other beings who all have their opposites. And he realizes this transcendent relationship in a way that the world can neither discover nor guess at, and which is completely free. And this manifests him as the God who in himself is absolute love, and hence Trinity. This love cannot be reconstructed by any kind of knowledge. Everything that we can understand about it, about Jesus, places us ever again before the love of Christ, which is beyond all understanding. In other words, you can compare John the Baptist with Elijah. You can compare John the Baptist with Isaiah. You can compare John the Baptist with Martin Luther King, if you want. But you can compare none of them to Jesus. He is superior to all of them. And my final thought, anything that you like about them, anything that you admire about them, anything you admire about Mother Teresa or any other person who's a role model for us, anything that you admire about anything, anything that you thrill to in creation as beautiful, they all exhibit that quality because those qualities flow to them directly from the one who contains them in a preeminent way in his very person. And these are my thoughts about Christmas as we approach this great feast. And the sense that God can be compared to no other is precisely the reason that he is, number one, able to come among us as an infant child. And number two, the reason we are able to conceive, as Mary and Joseph did, that the God in whom the fullness of everything resides is capable of condensing that fullness for our sake, first into the body of an infant, and then even further into the material elements of bread and wine that we believe communicate the same fullness to us as we await his coming again in glory. One final footnote, and I know I shouldn't go on, but that little icon you have there at the bottom, that's an Eastern Catholic Christian Byzantine icon of the Nativity. And I just want to direct your attention to the bottom left-hand corner where you see St. Joseph with his chin on his hand being addressed by another figure who comes to him as an ascetic from the desert. And the figure addressing him is the tempter who will later tempt Jesus in the desert. It's the evil one. And the iconographers tell us that what the tempter is saying to Joseph, this was my homily this morning, is, Joseph, you know quite well that it's impossible, number one, for a virgin to bear a child. And number two, it's impossible for God to become man. The first truth, the devil says, no virgin can bear a child, is a truth of nature. That God can become man is a truth of your Judaism. Therefore, 
you should have no faith in this child that is being born. And as Benedict points out in his book, Joseph being the descendant of David, to whom the promises of this unparalleled, ever greater Messiah were made, never to be thwarted even by the sins of Israel, those promises made to David are still alive in Joseph. So while he listens to the tempter, he follows his wife Mary in saying it is both possible and it did indeed happen. So we pray for their faith this Christmas as well. Thank you. God bless you and pray for me.